The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California Legislature. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, today, Lloyd, our show is about inequality, and that is really a privacy issue because if we don't have... Uh, as different people, the ability to have equality in our democracy, in our life, in our society, then we really lose freedom. And freedom is so closely related to privacy that I, I thought that it would be wonderful to talk about this wonderful new book called The Broken Ladder, How Inequality Affects the Way We Think, Live, and Die by Keith Payne. So this is a a really timely examination uh, by a leading sociologist of the physical, psychological, and moral effects of inequality. And we're seeing all these problems in our society and in our country about inequality. So I'm excited to interview our guest. Let me tell you a little bit about Keith Payne. He was born in Maceo, Kentucky. He received his BA from Western Kentucky University and his PhD from Washington University, and now he's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of North Carolina. Beautiful place. His path from the hills of Kentucky to the halls of academia laid the foundation for his research on the human consequences of social and economic inequality. He has published more than 70 articles and books book chapters, and his work has been covered in the media, including NPR, the New York Times, and the Atlantic. He's written for general audiences at Scientific American and Psychology Today, and we're just thrilled to have him. You can find out more about his book um, by Googling Broken Ladder. It's a Penguin book. It came out in May of 2017, so we're just really excited to have Keith join us. So thank you, Keith, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Yes, so I'm sure our university students will be happy to hear you. And, you know, I love, I've actually been on the campus of the University of North Carolina. My son graduated from Duke, so he had a lot of friends there. And it's, oh, what a what a beautiful place. So, love it. Thank you. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit first about why you decided to write this book. Well, we've been talking a lot uh, in in society lately about income inequality. It's become a topic of growing interest, both in terms of politics and uh, everyday life. But 
when we hear about it, usually it's all couched in terms of economics. Economists have studied it. Uh, social sociologists have studied it. I'm a social psychologist, uh, and we haven't heard a lot about it from a psychological point of view. So what I wanted to do with this book is to look at what income inequality does to us, not in terms of the macroeconomic issues, but as individuals, as people. What does it do to us to live in a world that is increasingly unequal? And so that's what I uh, wanted to focus on in the book. Yeah. So what kind of research did you do to, um, to, to really work on this? Well, the book brings together research from uh, several different fields, uh, including economics, but also going beyond uh, economics to look at social psychology, at cognitive psychology, at neuroscience, at sociology, and, and uh, research across the social sciences to look at the way that people's thinking and emotions and decisions and their behavior really changes uh, whenever they're operating in an environment where some people have dramatically more than others. There's that gap between the wealthiest and the poorest that, that uh, we're talking about when I say uh, inequality. And it turns out that that has a lot of implications for people's behaviors. That's what I study on a day-to-day -day basis in my laboratory at the University of North Carolina. And so the psychological and behavioral effects of inequality is the kind of research that's really the center point of this book. That's fascinating. Now, you say that half of Americans under 30 believe that the American dream is dead. And, you know, that's interesting because, you know, I have two kids that are in their 30s, and, and I do see that, you know, that kind of a, a, an attitude even with them. So t tell us about that. Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, cynicism and frustration and anxiety uh, about this idea of, of the American dream and how well people are doing compared to either their parents' generation or compared to other people in society. And we hear a lot on the news uh, in political circles about people feeling left behind, right? Mm. Uh, the, the interesting thing to me from a psychological point of view is if you look at the way the economy has changed over the last 50 years, um, if you look at the bottom three-fifths of uh, earners, they're actually making about the same as they were in 1967. If, if you look at in uh, uh, dollars adjusted for inflation, people in those bottom three-fifths are about where they were today, uh, were uh, in 1967, still today. Uh -huh. It's just the top two uh, quintiles that have started pulling away from everybody else, especially the top 20, the top 10, and the top uh, 5%. Now, what's interesting about that um, is that most people are no richer or poorer than they were. It's just that by comparison to the people who are pulling away from the rest of us, everybody feels worse off. Mm. That disconnect between where we are in terms of objective uh, wealth and where we are in terms of our subjective feelings and perceptions of uh, falling behind that motivates uh, a lot of what I talk about in the book. Right. Do you think some of that has to do, that psychological stuff has to do with, you know, what we see in the media, you know, on TV, all this wealth that we see on TV? And um, do you think so? anything has to do with that? Yeah. So uh, we have this tendency, we, we always compare ourselves to other people on like a million different dimensions. But whenever we're comparing to other people to judge how well we're doing ourselves, we have this tendency 
to compare upward to those who are doing better than us on some dimension instead of comparing downward to those who are doing worse than us. And so that's why, you know, there are no reality shows about middle class people. They're always about fabulously wealthy. Right, right. The Kardashians, right. The housewives and, and so forth, right. So nobody creates... Um, uh, a reality show about the average guy running his mom and pop store in your neighborhood. People aren't interested in seeing that. And so the fact that, you know, the Kardashians and, and uh, all of these other... Million dollar listing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's what we see on a day-to-day basis. Um, and so it, it creates this illusion like everybody else is fabulously wealthy and that comes to define what seems like the uh, the new normal for us and by that standard of course everybody feels like we're falling behind right you know when i was growing up and i i'm one of these baby boomers so when i was growing up you know there were a lot of shows that really weren't about just the fabulously wealthy you know and so it was middle class people or even some poor people you know it was it, they were the comedies right that i grew up with so it, you don't compare that or, or like father knows best if you ever even heard of that you're probably too young but you know all these shows you know that that we watched were just like middle class people they weren't fabulously wealthy so i i do think that um that it has changed like that i think you're right yeah, I think there's been a, a cultural shift along with the economic shift that, um, you know, in, in the 50s and 60s, uh, it, it was culturally valued to focus on sort of not standing out too much and being sort of an ordinary middle-class citizen. And today what is really valued more is standing out because of your individualism and your excellence in some way. Mm-hmm. Now, my kids kind of um, poo-poo all that, and, and they come from Southern California. You know, of course, my son lives in New York City now, and my daughter lives in Long Beach, but they they kind of poo-poo, like Orange County, California is like the OC, you know, they used to have a show, the OC, and it is, um, you know, they kind of poo-poo that now, like, oh gosh, the OC, the the upper upper middle class or, or whatever, they, they make fun of it. So it's kind of interesting that at least my kids, you know, they're college educated, have advanced degrees. I, I don't know. It's, it is kind of an interesting psychology. Yeah, it's interesting that um, on the one hand, you know, people might uh, say, "Well, I, I don't, I don't value that kind of thing. I don't, I don't like this uh, extravagant displays of wealth." Right, right, right. But, but that doesn't stop it from sort of uh, when we're not paying attention, changing uh, what we consider to be normal, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Dislike it, but still be affected by it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, why the human body responds to poverty and unfavorable social comparisons and kind of how does that, you know, relate to their stress and the stress response as, you know, as uh, as it responds to physical threat as well? Give us a little bit of background on that. Right. So uh, people talk about being stressed a lot, and, it, you know, we use, go around that word so much, it sometimes seems to lose its meaning, but uh, biologically speaking, the stress response refers to something specific, which is a body-wide biological and psychological response that mobilizes all of your resources to deal with some challenge or threat at hand. Right. And so so we, we can see how that works if in, in the, you know, sort of classic case, if you're walking along and see a snake in the grass or something that's a physical 
physical threat. Right. Um, you get a jolt of adrenaline, right? Um, your body dumps glucose into the blood, so you have all this sugar, this energy available for right. if you're going to run or, or fight or, or whatever the case may be. Um, what's less well known is your body also starts um, an immune response. You get an inflammatory response in response to uh, uh, a physical threat like that. Your body's basically preparing before it's ever been injured in case it might be injured. It's already pumping out um, uh, um, immune cells to, to deal with that threat. All right. mm. so these are all really good, helpful, adaptive responses in the moment if you're actually going to be in a crisis. Right, right. Problem is, um, as humans, we don't just turn it on in the moment of crisis for a short-term uh, get-me-out-of-this-crisis response. We can lay in bed at night thinking about anxieties down the road, bills that are due next month, things like that. And just thinking about those crises can turn on our immune system in the same way. So if we do that for months and week, weeks or months at a time, that's sort of like taking a powerful medication that has side effects. That It's fine if you take it once, but if you start taking it every day for months, those side effects are going to mount up. And so the stress response has side effects um, like that too. So yeah, so we're really creating all these drugs in our body, right? Whether it's um, glucose or, or cortisol or whatever, right? We're, we're creating that. So our bodies are really getting drugged by that to some extent, right? And that's, that's the side effects that you're talking about? That's right. Uh, the stress response is, is essentially your body um, using its own sort of in-house pharmacy to <laughs> I love that. Uh, medicate uh, itself. Right, and and that's very useful in the short term. But if if you don't turn it off, uh, those long term reactions have side effects. And so, uh, the stress response is just one example of a larger theme, which is that uh, whenever so so the body treats. Um, poverty or just sort of scarcity of resources, the feeling that I don't have enough to get through the day or to get through the week or to get through the month, uh, it treats it much like a physical crisis. And that's interesting, right? Because if, if your actual needs are met, you're not actually going to starve or anything, um, but just feel relatively poor because you're worried about making next month's bills, for example. Right, right. And yet you're having the same kind of physical stress response that you would if there was literally a physical threat in front of you. Right. And, and that's the power of uh, psychological responses to um, relative poverty and inequality. Mm. Your body treats them as real and physical in a present danger. Wow. You know, uh, I'm going through all this stress right now, uh, moving from a home that we've been in 27 years to downsize, right? <laughs> so uh, that stress response has been really strong. So I'm a meditator. So I, I do everything I can to offset that stress response. But um, it's, it's not easy to do when you're under that kind of pressure. So people like when they're getting married or they're getting a divorce or they have a death or they have a move, um, you know, those are hopefully temporary. But what you're talking about when somebody is living in constant poverty and never know when they're going to make, you know, going to make it to the next job or something, that uh, just goes on. And yeah. 
Yeah, the short term, it, it, it's, it's one thing to have, have a stress response in the short term, but yeah, whenever it's a continual response to your day-to-day living conditions, um, then that's when it spells trouble. Right, right. So um, what about uh, like on airplanes? We hear about all these crazy things with air rage, right? People are taking off the plane or, or even, the, uh, even the flight attendants getting into air rage, right? And, you know, throwing a woman and baby off the, the plane or whatever it is. Let's talk a little bit about air rage and how that's happening, especially with regard to like first class passengers. Right. So uh, I, I talk in the Broken Ladder about a study done recently that looked at the incidence of air rage in different kinds of flights. And they compared how often air rage events happen in flights that have a first class cabin versus flights that don't have a first class cabin. Um, and it turns out that simply having a first-class cabin on a flight increases by more than four times the likelihood that there's an uh, air rage incident on that flight. Wow. Huh. Uh, and, and it's not, it, it, and sometimes it's in first class, sometimes it's not, but the presence of this big difference between, mm. uh, you know, the, the luxurious seating in the front versus uh, the coach uh, crowdedness in the back seems to be what, what creates the pressure. In another uh, uh, analysis in that same study, they compared um, flights in which you board from the front and therefore walk right past the front, uh, the, the uh, first class section, versus flights in which you board from the middle, in which case coach passengers never walk past the first Right, right. Have to come face to face with the right. that, that group. And incidents of air rage were much more frequent in cases where you board from the front and right. the coach and the first class passengers come right face to face with each other. So it seems to be something about the social dynamics of of having the has and have nots on the same plane that increases um the stress or anxiety or or something that contributes to incidents of air rage. Yeah, seeing that difference. Yeah, that, that that's that's fascinating. So that's a, that's a good thing that uh, Southwest should think about that they don't have the first class. <laughs> so I wonder if they have like no air rage. But what about uh, how about rage on the on the uh, on the freeway? Well, we have freeways here, or on the expressways, or whatever you call it. When you've got like. When you're near Beverly Hills and you see all of these Jaguars and, you know, Teslas and all that versus somebody in their little pickup truck, I wonder if there's any difference with that. It's a good question. I mean, uh, one of the reasons that, that uh, people rage so much in automobiles is because they feel so separated and insulated from other people. They feel sort of anonymous, so they, right. their worst impulses can come out without being sort of seen as somebody who's acting in an antisocial way. But we do know a little bit about um, the, the, the association between those sorts of uh, status symbols uh, linked to cars and, and people's aggressive behavior. Um, uh, one study by uh, Paul Piffa, who I believe is at the uh, uh, University of Irvine himself, um, yeah. has done an interesting study in which um, they looked at in California, where at, at intersections where pedestrians have the right of way, uh-huh. um, and they they looked at when cars would come up and whether they would uh, actually 
give pedestrians the right away or whether they would force um oh, yeah force themselves through it yeah yeah and it turns out that if you code for the kind of car comparing sort of expensive luxury vehicles to more modest cars the uh more luxurious the car is the more people are likely to push through the intersection wow <laughs> kind of an arrogance huh yeah some interesting status of this luxury car uh either you know either something about those people that leads them to buy that car or maybe it's something about being in that car that leads them to um, feel that they have the status to, to push themselves forward. Interesting. We're speaking with Keith Payne, who's a professor at uh, University of North Carolina, and he has written this book, fascinating book called The Broken Ladder, How Inequality Affects the Way We Think, Live, and Die. I have to tell you this. This is so fascinating to me because we went to Bali, and Bali is mostly Hindu. And if you come there and you're really wealthy and or, or just you know middle class even, um, th- you have so much more than they have in Bali. They're kind of third world, very sweet people. Well, they have this attitude that if you have a lot of wealth and you come with, you know, jewelry or whatever it is, that you must have been really good in a previous life. And so instead of looking it down on you, they kind of look, revere you that you must have been good in that previous life so so that the gods rewarded you. And that's how they treated us, you know, coming from California with so much more. They were so sweet. And you know, it was interesting that one guy who was showing us around in, in our car that we rented wa- asked us to come home so we could meet his family, and we had dinner with them in their, their, their very modest home that we would bless them. It was just amazing. A very different kind of attitude. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Even though here it's not tied to uh, past lives, we have something very similar in America and, and in Western cultures. Um, it's it's known as uh, uh, the just world theory, that people tend to assume that the world is fair and just, and therefore if you've been successful, you've done something to earn it. And if you've been unsuccessful, then you've earned that failure due to some sort of character flaw or uh, yeah. feeling, right? Yeah. Um, and there, there's, a, there's a great study that... Uh, demonstrated this by um, asking participants to do a certain task, a simple uh, task, and they told one group that you're going to get paid a certain amount, and they told another group that you're going to get paid twice that much. Mm-hmm. And both groups knew how much each group was being paid. They knew they were doing the exact same task, and they knew that it was just a flip of a coin that determined who got paid more and who got paid less. Wow. So they did the task, and then they asked the participants, how talented are you at this task? And how talented are the people in that other group? And people in the group that got paid more thought they were more talented at it than the people who got <laughs> Even though they knew logically that it was a coin flip that put them in that position. It's just this really powerful uh, intuition we have that if, if somebody's successful, there must be something special about them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is, if somebody's struggling, there must be something wrong with them. Interesting. Our brain is so interesting. So, you know, we have conservatives that are, you know, very much thinking differently than liberals about poverty. Let's talk a little bit about that. And what is the psychology of that? You know, the differences and are they right? You know, are they right that if you're liberal, you think it's 
society has has failed people and if you're conservative you think that people are lazy or that it's their own personal um, motivation or whatever what, what what is all that about right so um, on the one hand you know if you look at human behavior um, it, it's pretty clear that you know uh, people's financial success is probably driven by a combination of you know merit things like skill and talent and hard work, uh, and luck, right? And I, I think in the abstract, we can all see that both are at play. Um, but it does tend to be ideologically divided so that uh, liberals tend to focus more on the luck and the circumstance part, and uh, conservatives focus more on individual behavior and character uh, virtues or character flaws. Mm-hmm. Um, so... In, in my opinion, both sides are sort of missing part of the picture here because on the one hand, um, tons of social science data uh, suggests that the circumstantial side has a lot of evidence. We can predict how, somebody, how much somebody's going to earn and how much they're going to live uh, before they're even born if we just know the zip code that they're about to be born into. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so there's no denying that the, the context is a powerful uh, force here. But um, where liberals often have a blind spot is in recognizing that people's actual behaviors and decisions do have um, a, a role to play in whether they have good outcomes or, or bad outcomes. What I think conservatives miss is that the context into which people are either born or are thrust in, in whatever way um, changes our actual behaviors. It changes the way we make decisions. Mm-hmm. Just like we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago regarding the stress response, um, cognitively too, whenever we feel like tomorrow's uncertain, like we don't, like we have scarce resources, we don't have enough to get by, we start making impulsive and high-risk decisions that are focused on just getting us through this crisis moment now, right? Even at the risk of long-term problems. Um, now that. You can look at that kind of behavior, whether it's uh, running up bills on a credit card or taking payday loans or no money down sorts of loans, and say, well, that's irresponsible because there's a, a high rate of interest or you're wasting money on the lottery and you're ne- never going to win it. Right, right. Um, you can say, well, that's irresponsible and therefore you're, respo- you're, you're making your own bad decisions. And yet, we know from the social science research including some in my own lab, that when you make people feel relatively poor, they, it creates this crisis mode in which people make those short-term right. decisions. So the, the, it's not as simple as, you know, either um, it's the luck of the context or it's some kind of character flaw. Yeah. So we only have about a minute and a half left, and um, I'm interested to know what you think should be done, because obviously the way we think creates our reality, right? That's basically what you're saying to, to a great extent. So so what should we do? What should parents do? But what should we do for ourselves to change that so to put us more on an equal footing? Well, this is a, a big topic, but... Uh, yeah, sorry about that. Um, it, it comes down to the kinds of, uh, in many cases, to the kinds of social comparisons we make. Our default tendency is to compare upward to those who have more, but we can compare more wisely to that and think carefully about when we're comparing ourselves to, uh, you know, our parents' generation versus the Kardashians versus, uh, you know, s- some more appropriate and helpful kind of comparison that's more informative 
for us in our real lives. Yeah, and maybe teaching ourselves that as we, if we could change the way we think about things, then we can really change our lives. If we, you know what I mean? For me, having a spiritual base, not religious so much, it doesn't have to be any particular religion, but for me, a spiritual base of saying, you know, everything happens for a reason and I'm, I, this is my lesson, but I know that I can, that I can do what I need to do and I can be successful um, based on having, uh, you know, that belief that I can do it, you know, that inner, that inner, changing of my thinking because I know that I can start thinking negative and be in my right frontal lobe <laughs> and then I have to get my left frontal lobe to kind of say stop that thinking you know what I mean that's that seems to me would be real helpful if we could teach that in the schools you know yeah. that cognitive behavioral type therapy but, right these are all different ways of trying to get to get, get people especially our kids to focus on what really matters most yeah and focus on what they really value well that's terrific so um so we will if you're interested in this this is a fascinating story and about human behavior the broken ladder how inequality affects the way we think live and die by keith Payne. that's p-a-y-n-e you can uh search his name keith Payne, and um or the broken ladder on on the web and find out more about it. it's just fascinating so we hope to keep in touch and have you back again with your next book okay thanks so much good to talk to you you too You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine at KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 